great pleasure to speak here tonight to the Newman Forum. I think that if there is any value in hearing writers talk, it will be in hearing what they can witness to and not what they can theorize about. I'm a Catholic and a novelist and a southerner, and so with, I think, commendable logic, I'm speaking tonight about the Catholic novelist in the fact. I often find among Catholics a certain impatience with Southern literature, sometimes a fascinated impatience, but usually a definite feeling that with all the violence and grotesquery and religious enthusiasm reflected in its fiction, the South, that is the rural Protestant Bible Belt South, is a little beyond the pale of Catholic respect, and that certainly it would be ridiculous to expect the emergence in any such soil of anything like a literature inspired by Catholic belief. But for my part, I don't think that this is at all unlikely. There are certain conditions necessary for the emergence of Catholic literature which are found nowhere else in this country in such abundance as in the Protestant South. And I look forward with considerable relish to the day when we are going to have to enlarge our notions of the Catholic novel to include some pretty odd Southern specimens. The American Catholic trusts the fictional imagination about as little as he trusts anything. Before it's well on his feet, he's busy looking for heresy in it. The Catholic press is constantly broken out in a rash of articles on the failure of the Catholic novelist. The Catholic novelist is failing to reflect the virtue of hope, failing to show the Church's interest in social justice, failing to show life as a positive good, failing to portray our beliefs in a light that will make them desirable to others. He occasionally writes well, but he always writes wrong. Now, if in the next 20 years we find ourselves with a batch of wild Southern Catholic novelists who fail in all these things, and in addition have certain positive obnoxious qualities, such as a penchant for violence and grotesquery and religious enthusiasm, we are doubtless going to wonder how these strange birds got hatched in our nest. Catholic discussions of the Catholic novel are frequently ridiculous because every given circumstance of a writer is ignored except his faith. No one taking part in these discussions seems to remember that the eye sees what it has been given to see by concrete circumstances, and that the imagination reproduces what, by some related gift, it is able to make live. I collect articles from the Catholic press on the failure of the Catholic novels, and recently in one of them, I came upon this typical sentence. Why not a positive novel based on the church's fight for social justice, 
of the liturgical revival, a life in a seminary. I take it that if seminarians began to write novels about life in the seminary, there would soon be several less seminarians. <laughs> but we are to assume that anybody who can write at all and who has the energy to do some research can give us a novel on this or any needed subject and can make it positive. A lot of novels do get written in this way. It is, in fact, the traditional procedure of the hack. And by some accident of God, such a novel might turn out to be a work of art, but the possibility is unlikely. In a number of these articles, the writer asks this wistful question. Would it not seem in order now for some of our younger men to explore the possibilities inherent in certain positive factors which make Catholic life and the Catholic position in this country increasingly challenging. This whole attitude, which proceeds from the standpoint of what it would be good to do or have to supply a general need, is totally opposite to the novelist's own approach. No serious novelist explores possibilities inherent in factors. That school teacher taught. Conrad wrote that the artist descends within himself, and in that region of stress and strife, if he be deserving and fortunate, he finds the terms of his appeal. Where you find the terms of your appeal may have little or nothing to do with what is challenging in the life of the church at the moment. And this is particularly apparent to the Southern Catholic writer whose imagination has been cast by life in a region which is traditionally Protestant. The Catholic novel can't be categorized by subject matter, but only by what it assumes about human and divine reality. It cannot see man as determined. It cannot see him as totally depraved. It will see him as incomplete in himself, as prone to evil, but as redeemable when his own efforts are assisted by grace. And it will see this grace as working through nature, but as entirely transcending it, so that a door is always open to possibility and the unexpected within the human soul. Its center of meaning will be Christ. Its center of destruction will be the devil. No matter how this view of life may be fleshed out, these assumptions form its skeleton, but you don't write fiction with assumptions. The things we see, hear, smell, and touch affect us long before we believe anything at all. The South impresses its image on the Southern writer from the moment he is able to distinguish one sound from another. He takes it in through his ears and hears it again in his own voice and by the time he is able to use his imagination for fiction, he finds that his senses respond irrevocably to a certain reality, and particularly to the sound of a certain reality. The Southern writer's greatest tie with the South is through his ear, which is usually sharp, 
but not too versatile. With a few exceptions, such as Miss Porter, he is not too often successfully cosmopolitan in fiction. I have a friend from Minnesota who went to Japan during the war and came back writing credible stories about Japanese. If I went to Japan and tried to write credible stories about Japanese, all my Japanese would sound like Herman Talmadge. <laughs> Uh, the Southern writer is stuck with the Southern idiom, but it's a very good thing to be stuck with. When one Southern character speaks, regardless of his station in life, an echo of all Southern life is heard. This keeps Southern literature social, keeps it from being a literature of purely private experience. This discovery of having his senses respond to a particular society and a particular history, to particular sounds and a particular idiom, is for the Southern writer the beginning of a recognition that first puts his work in real human perspective for him. When the Southern Catholic writer descends within his imagination, unless he happens to have the good fortune of being from southern Louisiana. What he finds is not often Catholic life, but the life of a region in which he is both native and alien. His sense of belonging to the South is great, but his sense of belonging to the Church is greater and more mysterious, and it is an experience which is liable to shrink southern history rather drastically. This condition promotes considerable objectivity on the writer's part. It puts him at a distance from what he loves, at a distance from all that is purely sovereign, and at a distance from that fullness of Catholic life that might be found in a Catholic culture. For many young writers, Catholic or other, the discovery that the imagination is not free but bound is not a very pleasant one. They feel that the first thing they must do in order to write well is to shake off the clutch of the region. A few young Southern writers feel about the South the way Joyce felt about Ireland, that it will devour them. They would like to set their stories in a region whose way of life seems nearer the spirit of what they think they have to say. Or better, they would like to eliminate the region altogether. But you cannot proceed at all if you cut yourself off from the sights and sounds that have built up a life of their own in your senses and which carry a culture in them. The image of the South is so strong in us that it is a force which has to be encountered and engaged. And it is when this is a true engagement that its meaning will lead outward to universal human interest. The Catholic novel that fails is usually one in which this kind of engagement is absent. It is a novel in which there is no sense of place and in which feeling is by that much diminished. Its action occurs in an abstracted setting that could be anywhere or nowhere. This reduces its dimensions drastically and cuts down on those tensions that keep it from being facile 
inflict. The American Catholic is short on places that reflect his particular point of view. This country isn't exactly cut in his image, and where Catholics do abound, they usually blend almost imperceptibly into the general materialistic background. Where the Catholic writer does have a place, such as the Midwestern parishes, which serve J.F. Powers as regent, or South Boston, which belongs to Edwin O'Connor. These places have very definite limitations that have to be compensated for by a great deal of talent on the part of the writer. Whereas in the South, some fairly modest talents can come up with some fairly respectable fiction simply because society and history come more than halfway to meet them. The science is still broad enough in significant history and regional self-consciousness and in social conflict and cultural unity and exploitable evil to support for a good many years to come any writer who approaches life with his eyes open. But the writer whose themes are religious particularly needs a region where these themes find a response in the life of the people. And this condition is met in the Protestant South as nowhere else. A secular society understands the religious mind less and less. It becomes more and more difficult in America for the novelist to make belief believable. When you try to create a character who believes strenuously in Christ, you have to explain his aberration. Here, the Southern writer has the greatest possible advantage. He lives in the Bible Belt, where such people are taken for granted. It was about 1919 that Macon called the South the Bible Belt and the Sahara of the Beaux-Arts. That was only a few years before the emergence in the South of a literature to reckon with. Today, Southern literature is known around the world, and the South is still the Bible Belt. Sam Jones' grandma read the Bible 37 times on her knees, and the rural South is made up of the descendants of old ladies like her. You don't shake off their influence in even several generations. I noticed in my motel room there's one television set and two Bibles. <laughs> King James. It was recently suggested to me in an interview I had in Chicago that the biblical flavor of the Protestant South is a hindrance to the Catholic writer because Catholic readers are not accustomed to seeing religion biblically. This suggestion raises my blood pressure to a dangerous degree. It is true that if your readers are not well acquainted with the Bible, you do not have the instruments to plumb meaning, and specifically Christian meaning, that you would have if the biblical background conditioned their response to life. The writer's instruments have, unfortunately, to be shared with his audience. But the fact that Catholics are not accustomed to seeing religion biblically is a deficiency on the part of Catholics. And if the Catholic writer tries to accommodate himself to 
to such a deficiency. Our literature will always be going downhill and ourselves behind it. This is, after all, a correctable deficiency. It is not invincible ignorance. Nothing, I think, will ensure the future of Catholic literature in this country so much as the biblical revival. But unfortunately, that revival is still confined to the educated, and it is the good that the poor and the ignorant hold in common that is most valuable to the fiction writer, because it is the least common denominator of good. When the poor hold sacred history in common, they have concrete ties to the universal and the holy, which allow the meaning of their every action to be heightened and seen under the aspects of eternity. The suggestion in this question that it is only Catholics we write for is also depressing. The Catholic writer writes for anybody who can read, and the Bible is what we share with all religious people of the Jewish and Christian traditions and with those non-believers who can at least see its value as literature. It is just one more specific thing that increases the scope of Southern fiction. To be great storytellers, we need something to measure ourselves against, and this is what we conspicuously lack in this age. Men judge themselves now by what they find themselves doing. Catholic has the teachings of the church to serve him in this regard, but for the writing of fiction, something more is necessary. For the purposes of fiction, these guides have to exist in a concrete form, known and held sacred by the whole community. They have to exist in the form of stories which affect our image and our judgment of ourselves. Abstractions, formulas, laws will not do here. We have to have stories. It takes a story to make a story. It takes a story of mythic dimensions, one which belongs to everybody, one in which everybody is able to recognize the hand of God and imagine its descent upon himself. In the Protestant sense, the scriptures fill this role. The ancient Hebrew genius for making the absolute concrete has conditioned the Southerners' way of looking at things. That is one of the big reasons why the South is a storytelling section at all. Our response to life is different if we have been taught only a definition of faith than it is if we have trembled with Abraham as he held a knife over Isaac. Both of these kinds of knowledge are necessary. But in the last four or so centuries, we in the church have overemphasized the abstract and the legal and consequently impoverished our imagination and our capacity for prophetic insight. The circumstance of being a southerner, of living in a non-Catholic but religious society, furnishes the Catholic novelist with some very fine antidotes to his own worst tendencies. I once read a review of two books by Catholics on the subject of the Catholic novel. One writer said that in order for a novel to be a Catholic one, it would have to be about a saint. The other writer said it would have to be by a saint. 
we enjoy indulging ourselves in the logic that kills and making categories smaller and smaller and prescribing attitudes and proscribing subjects. The Catholic novelist in the South is forced to follow the spirit into strange places and to recognize it in many forms not totally congenial to him. His interest and sympathy may very well go, as I find my own does, directly to those aspects of Southern life where the religious feeling is most intense and where its outward forms are farthest from the Catholic and most revealing of a need which only the church can feel. A religion based entirely on the Bible creates many distortions, for the Bible was meant to stand but not to stand alone. But the Catholic novelist in the South will feel certainly that a distorted image of Christ is better than no image at all. I think he will feel a good deal more kinship with backwoods prophets and shouting fundamentalists than he will with those politer elements for whom the supernatural is an embarrassment and for whom religion has already become a department of sociology or culture of personality development. A few years ago, a preacher in Tennessee attracted considerable attention when he sacrificed a live lamb chained to a cross at his Lenten revival service. It's possible that this was simple showmanship, but I doubt it. I presume that this was as close to the mass as that man could come. The Catholic writer may feel at first that the kind of religious enthusiasm that has influenced Southern life has run hand in hand with extreme individualism for so long that there is nothing left of it that he can recognize. But when he penetrates to the human aspiration beneath it, he sees not only what has been lost to the life he observes, but more, the terrible loss to us in the church of human faith and passion. The result of these underground religious affinities will be a strange and, to many, perverse fiction, one which serves no felt need, which gives us no picture of Catholic life or the religious experiences that are usual with us. But I believe it will be Catholic fiction. There is only one Holy Spirit, and he is no respecter of persons. These people in the invisible church make discoveries that have meaning for us who are better protected from the vicissitudes of our own nature and who are often too lazy and satisfied to make any discoveries at all. These people in the invisible church may be grotesque, but their grotesqueness has a significance and a value which the Catholic should be in a better position than others to recognize. I find that any fiction that comes out of the South is going to be called grotesque by the Northern reader, unless it is grotesque, in which case it is going to be called realistic. <laughs> we are thought to be such a peculiar people that any atrocities we perpetrate can be considered normal for us. The word grotesque 
should not necessarily be used as a pejorative term. There is the grotesque of the animated cartoon, but there is also that grotesque which is a constant in literature when any considerable depth of reality has been penetrated. In Southern fiction, there is a growing tradition of the grotesque. In 19th century American writing, there was a good deal of grotesque literature which came from the frontier and was supposed to be funny, such as Sight Loving Good. Our present grotesque heroes are comic, but not primarily so. They seem to carry an invisible burden to fix us with eyes that remind us that we all bear some heavy responsibility whose nature we have forgotten. They are prophetic figures. In the novelist's case, prophecy is a matter of seeing near things with their extensions of meaning and thus of seeing far things close up. Prophet is a realist of distances, distances in the qualitative sense. And it is this kind of realism that you find in the best modern instances of the grotesque. But to the eye of the general reader, these prophet heroes are freaks. The public, with its clinical bias, invariably approaches them from the standpoint of abnormal psychology. Whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly have this penchant for writing about freaks, I say it is because we are still able to recognize one. To be able to recognize a freak, you have to have some conception of the whole man. And in the South, the general conception of man is still in the main theological. Of course, the South is changing so rapidly that almost anything you say about Southern beliefs can be denied in the next breath with equal propriety. But approaching the subject from the non-statistical standpoint of the writer, I think it is safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. It is interesting that as belief in the divinity of Christ decreases, there seems to be a preoccupation with Christ's figures in our fiction. What is pushed to the back of the mind makes its way forward somehow. Ghosts can be very fierce and instructive. They cast strange shadows, particularly in our literature, for it is the business of the artist to reveal what haunts us. We may be in the process of exorcising this ghost which has given us our model of perfection. I have said that the South can still support many writers. There are other people, better qualified than I am, who don't think so. Robert Penn Warren has said that in 20 years, there may be no such thing in Southern literature. By that time, the writer from the South may be writing about men in gray flannel suits and may have lost his ability to see that these gentlemen are even greater freaks than what we are writing about now. The South is struggling mightily to retain her identity. Against great odds, and without knowing always quite in what her identity lies. An identity is not made from what passes, 
but from those qualities that endure because they are related to truth. It is not made from the mean average or the typical, but often from the hidden and the most extreme. I think Catholic novelists in the future will be able to reinforce the vital strength of Southern literature, for they will know very well that what has given the South her identity has been those most Catholic characteristics of her Protestantism, the Bible, a sense of primal guilt, and of human dependence on the grace of God. It is ironical that these beliefs which have characterized the South's Protestantism in the past may receive in the South's future the greater share of their support from the Catholic Church which alone seems able to uphold the inerrancy of Scripture in these times. A sense of guilt is only a neurotic drag unless it springs from a sense of holiness. And without the Bible and the Church, this sense of holiness, and with it a sense of dependence on grace, will eventually fade away before the onslaughts of modern unbelief. Catholic novelist with his older tradition and his ability to resist the dissolution of belief can make his contribution to Southern literature, but only if he realizes that he has as much to learn from it as to give to it. And what goes for the writer goes double for the reader. Thomas Mann has said that the grotesque is the true anti-bourgeois style. Certainly, Catholicism is opposed to the bourgeois mind, but in the dealings of American Catholics with fiction, you usually find a good deal of what is basically uncatholic, or maybe what you find is a misunderstanding of what the effects of grace look like in fiction. The Catholic reader wants his grace warm and binding, not dark and disruptive. He is very busy always looking for some new Dr. Pangloss who will assure him that this is the best of all possible words. The word that occurs again and again in his demand for the Catholic novel is the word positive. He seems to assume that what the Catholic writer writes about will follow a broad general attitude he has about the goodness of God's original creation and our redemption and resurrection in Christ. There may be writers whose genuine vocation it is to do this, but certainly there may be others whose vocation is the right of man's perverse reaction to these gifts and graces. There is nothing in our faith that implies a foregone optimism for man so free that with his last breath he can... genuine vocation it is to do this, but certainly there may be others whose vocation is the right of man's perverse reaction to these gifts and graces. There is nothing in our... His vocation is the right of man's perverse reaction to these gifts and graces. There is nothing in our faith that implies a foregone optimism for man so free 
that with his last breath he can say no. All Catholic literature will be positive in that it shows this freedom to exist. Beyond that, the novelist must follow the particularity of his own vocation. Not long ago, I received a letter from an old lady in California who informed me that when the tired reader comes home at night, he wishes to read something that would lift up his heart. And it seems that her heart had not been lifted up by anything of mine she had read. If her heart had been in the right place, it would have been lifted up. You may say that the serious writer doesn't have to bother about the tired reader, but he does because they are all tired. One old lady who wants her heart lifted up wouldn't be so bad, but you multiply her 250,000 times, and what you get is a book club. <laughs> the writer, without softening his vision, is obliged to capture or conjure reading, and this means any kind of reading, means whatever is there. I used to think that it should be possible to write for some supposed elite, for the people who attend the universities and sometimes know how to read. But I have since found that though you may publish your stories in the Yale Review, if they are any good at all, you are eventually going to get a letter from some old lady in California or some inmate of the federal penitentiary or the state insane asylum or the local poorhouse telling you where you have failed to meet his need. And his need, of course, is to be lifted up. There is something in us as storytellers and as listeners to stories that demands a redemptive act, that demands that what falls at least be offered the chance of restoration. The reader of today looks for this motion and rightly so, but he's forgotten the cost of it. His sense of evil is diluted or lacking altogether, and so he has forgotten the price of restoration. He has forgotten the cost of truth, even in fiction. I don't believe that you can impose orthodoxy on fiction. I do believe that you can deepen your own orthodoxy by reading it if you are not afraid of strange visions. Our sense of what is contained in our faith is deepened less by abstractions than by an encounter with mystery in what is human and often perverse. We Catholics are much given to the instant answer. Fiction doesn't have any. St. Gregory wrote that every time the sacred text describes a fact, it reveals a mystery. And this is what the fiction writer, on his lower level, attempts to do also. The danger for the writer who is spurred by the religious view of the world is that he will consider this two operations instead of one. He will lift up the old lady's heart without cost to himself or to her. He will forget that the devil is as successful as ever in his daily task of winning souls and that grace cuts 
with the sword Christ said he came to bring. He will try to enshrine the mystery without the fact, and there will follow a further set of separations which are inimical to all. Judgment will be separated from vision, nature from grace, and reason from the imagination. These are separations which are very apparent in American life and in American writing. I believe that they are less true of the South, seen with her true identity, than of any other section in the country. And in this, I believe that the South is truly Catholic. The Catholic novelist will boast of the South's best tradition, for they are the same as his own. And the South will perhaps lead him to be less timid as a novelist, more respectful of the concrete, more trustful of the blind imagination. The poet is traditionally a blind man, but the Christian poet and the storyteller as well is like the blind man Christ touched, who looked then and saw men as if they were trees, but walking. Christ touched him again, and he saw clearly. We will not see clearly until Christ touches us in death. But this first touch is the beginning of vision, and it is an invitation to deeper and stranger vision that we shall have to accept if we want to realize a Catholic literature.